dear viewers and listeners, welcome to the latest episode of Extra Extra. It's all about whiskey. I remain your host, Jason NPH, Johnson Yellen. He remains Joshua Morrissey-Hatton. Hello, Joshua. You know, someone told me the other day, they said, your middle name isn't Morrissey? I thought it was Morrissey this whole time. Isn't that awesome? my middle name. That's, I tell you, if it's made it into a podcast, yep. it's official. Which, of course, means that I've added Patrick and Harris to my middle name. So here we are. <laughs> life, here takes, we are. life takes many turns. Um, yeah, here, here on Extra Extra, we bring up a whiskey-related news story. We present it. We discuss it. We riff it. And we always get out of here in a tight 35. Sometimes there's even a little something in our glass. Mm-hmm. And I currently have a little something in my glass. Do you have a little something in your glass? I do. Right. I do. I got just a, just, I call this a, a nosing and tasting pour. That's just the Lovely. right, the right amount of liquid in your glass. <laughs> Still about a third more than I poured, but here we are. <laughs> yeah. And that's why people come to my house to drink. Because <laughs> Please continue going to Joshua's house. I'll be <laughs> Oh, shit. <laughs> so, so today's article was sent to us by a, a venerable friend of ours. Mm. The venerable and all-around nice guy. Oh, Steve yeah. Hawley, president of the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission. You down with ASM <laughs> Single Malt? WC? I don't know. I don't know why I left a gap for you to fill there, George. I, I regret I everything. Mistakes I'm bad with made. the acronyms. The article is from vinepair.com. Uh, we've had vinepair articles on before. Oh yeah. This one is entitled "Loved at Home, Ignored Abroad: Why European Whiskey Drinkers Aren't Buying the Bourbon Hype." And mm. the words are by Evan Rail. It was published November 29 of this year, 2023. Hmm. And if you go over to the Vinepair article, you will find an illustration. And that was illustrated by Sarah Pinsenault. Uh, yeah, it, it messes with your head. Like if you have it's, too it's much fun, bourbon, yeah, it's going to mess it's with It's a fun you. little illustration, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. It's a framed box that isn't holding the bourbon. But the bourbon is a part of it and yet separate. Very metaphorical for the article that we're covering. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Do you want to lead us through this one? Oh, I feel boy. like I've been doing a lot of a lot of sharing of these. Well, yeah. Um, oh, man. You can bounce back and forth as well. Whatever yeah, you want. Let's have a- <laughs> well, I, I, wanted, I wanted to bring um, – I wanted to put bourbon sort of in the context of the greater whiskey world. And I'm going to use a quote from um, Stefan Wersch um, to help me do that. All right. So, so Stefan, whose name I hadn't heard before, but, but here we are. His name is brought up here. It says, first and foremost, spirits customers here think of Scottish, Irish, and Japanese whiskey, he said. In the old world, there is no bourbon or rye hype. And again, this is according to Stefan Wersch, who's the the founder of Swiss-based European Bourbon and Rye Association. And and as we go 
through this article, one of the things that I found most striking, and it it makes me wonder if this is in part why those in Europe don't necessarily think of bourbon or rye as a go-to spirit, is really what we export over there. We're not exporting necessarily the fancy stuff or a good bit of it. We're exporting all the 40% bottom shelf bourbon, which is really meant for for cocktailing purposes and not necessarily for for dramming purposes. Yeah. I I think before we get too far into the European side of things, Mm. if we're comparing this to what we're currently seeing in America, within these American shores. Hmm. There was a period where bourbon wasn't doing well in America. And that period yeah. was not that long ago. Really? So so the fact that we're now seeing such a boom in America and we look outside these shores and we say, hmm, it's just not doing that well over in Europe – yeah, it takes time to build this, right? It takes that that um, snowball running down that hillside to start gathering pace and gathering more snow and gathering size. True. Like, I, you know, you and I have talked on and off about bourbon and extra extra. And sometimes this isn't true of all bourbon people. Please don't write in bourbon people. But we've we've talked about the papification of Pappy, and we've talked about the papification of Springbank. Mm-hmm. There's sometimes a feeling that people get excited about bourbon because other people are excited about bourbon, and they think they ought to be excited about bourbon, right? <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> right? yes. And, and, I, yep. and that hype starts to feed into itself, and that doesn't matter whether it's pop artists or theater tickets, the latest and greatest opera. You know, I'm getting uh, over the top of my skis now. Greatest and greatest in opera. (laughs) Right. But but, but my point remains, right? Hype builds hype. And when there's more hype around bourbon, you have a result of more hype around bourbon, certainly within these American shows. Interestingly, you know, or or um, conversely, these other things that people can build hype over, be it the latest in opera. Um, Good point, Joshua. Well right? Um Everybody has the ability to experience those things, right? If the biggest opera comes out, well, just go to YouTube and you, you can find it, right? Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna be using this this fucking opera thing throughout. But so, no, so, I, so I would say the opposite of that. L- look how difficult it became to get a ticket to Book of Mormon. Look how difficult it became to get a ticket to but, Hamilton. But. Right? But all of that was available to you. You could download the music on <laughs> Spotify, on on Apple. There were plenty of places if you wanted to, you know, you could seek out bootleg recordings of Hamilton, bootleg recordings of uh, of Book of Mormon, and so on. The point that I'm trying to get to here is to get into the bourbon hype to really understand bourbon outside of your typical 40% ABV bottom shelf stuff is it has to be liquid on lips. And your point, mm-hmm. the point that you made earlier was a, was a really interesting one in that 
bourbon only recently became popular again. And we're, we're really looking at maybe 2013-ish when it really <laughs> started to kick off. And it has to have this snowball effect. The tough bit is that the the size of the American mountain is 350 million strong. So that snowball has to go down a yeah. very large mountain before it gets elsewhere. So this is this is why again this is why I think uh European consumers are going to have a tough time really connecting with bourbon because they're just getting the the well so, the well pours if you will. So let me un, let me try to unpack the point that you're making there see if I'm fully understanding you. So so we're we're taking in these two points right now which is um, bourbon took a while to build the hype in America and now is going mm -hmm. hammer and tongs. Mm -hmm. It's going so well that special releases are not making it outside of US shores because they're only being used to meet American demand. So the hype in America is, is both good for and bad for bourbon overseas, in this example, Europe, yes. from the Vine yes, article. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So... Um, you can look over America and say, wow, they're really going crazy bananas for bourbon over there. I wonder when we'll get the stuff that we can go crazy bananas for and it's not leaving because of the hype that's generating the interest yes. in Europe yes. but is not getting met uh, over there. I, yeah, I, I think that's a good point. I think it's, I, I think it's maybe part one of a, of a larger issue for, mm -hmm. for Europe getting more excited about bourbon. Uh, the other aspect is one that you and I have talked about on and off, which is tariffs. You know, mm -hmm. um, in the article, they talk about Discus celebrating the removal of the 29% tariff mm. uh, on American spirits, in this case, bourbon and rye, that were going into Europe. And I mean, you know, I, I don't know whether we want to talk about it now or, or kick that can a little later into the episode, but we are currently you know, the day this episode drops is December 6th. We mm. will be 25 days away from a potential 50% tariff being reintroduced on American spirits. And in this case, bourbon and rye. So it's, you know, a very quick tangential. What, what did what did you see on the side of, of Scotch sales when we were living under the 25% tariff uh, that came in under the, the previous administration. Yeah, that it definitely slowed some things down. Um, however, however, you know, I, I can really only speak for, for impacts, but at that time, you know, we had producers like Kilhoman uh, mm -hmm. who were, who were working with us to absorb the tariffs and we yeah. as an importer did did all we could as well interestingly enough you know there i'm not going to mention any names uh but there were a, a host of other brands that instantly put the prices up on their whiskeys despite the whiskey already being here mm -hmm, stateside mm -hmm. not needing to have that extra 25 percent Sadly, that was a bit of a money grab, and I and I would argue this this short term sort of nearsighted um, uh, approach to selling whiskey 
or I think I think that hurt Scotch overall. And there are still some people that even think the tariffs are still on because they've only <laughs> loosely followed, right? They've only loosely followed that story. And when the tariffs came down two, three years later, whatever the number was, uh, many of the prices stored, sort of stayed the same. Yeah. And then as yep. COVID raged on and whiskey became scarcer and scarcer because people were buying more and more, you know, the, the prices just stayed despite the two yeah. having gone away. Right. So. Yeah. It, it does make me wonder in this current example, if we're, if some of the larger players are perhaps shipping bourbons and rise into Europe pre December 31, uh, so that w they're protected against worst case scenario. You know, e even if this 50% tariff hits, I don't believe it will. I've, you know, over the last three years, we've seen so many death knells being sounded that have then been ceased, saved at the, at the 11th hour. And I really believe that this is so gargantuan that it will be saved at the 11th hour as I, well. I hope you're right. Uh, you know, if I'm being honest, I don't fully understand why these tariffs are hmm. are potentially being put into place. I don't think they're connected again to... I, I, again, I'm, I'm no expert on this, um, and that, that's a gross <laughs> over-exaggeration that I'm not even that close to an expert. You just say I'm no expert my, and just leave it there. My, my understanding is that when they, <laughs> when they took away the previous tariffs, they kicked the can down the road, and until they had a full-time solution, they would still have the threat oh, of tariffs hanging over it. And now we've reached the date where this is meant to be the final decision. So I wonder if we'll see another exercise in can mm. kicking uh, for another six month, 12 month, 24 month period. Who, who the heck knows? But that, yeah. that's why I'm kind of hopeful there'll be an, an 11th hour solution. It might not necessarily be the best solution, but it, but it may very well be a solution. So uh, last thing that I'll say on this, and I wanted to bring up sort of uh, an, an interesting part of this story really quickly, because we're getting a bit tangential with the tariffs here. But you know, here in the U.S., when we removed, <laughs> I will respectfully disagree. But okay, continue on. <laughs> I mean, it's not really what the story is about. The story is, you know, about why. I think the I think the tariffs are germane. But carry on. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Um. Here in the U.S. The tariff discussion, once the tariffs came down, the tariffs against Scotch whiskey into the U.S., once they came down, that, that can, that conversation was kicked down the road by five years. And so here we are, we're three years in into our five years, so it's, it'd be interesting if Europe's kick, kicking of the can was only three years where ours was was five years. That would be an interesting thing for our two governments yeah. to to agree to. Yeah, if, if you recall, the, the Scotch and the U.S. Uh, spirits were not solved at the same time. Like no. that's yeah. that boggles my mind. <laughs> like why would they not be solved at the same time? So anyway, government's <sighs> gonna govern. Yeah. So so the reason why I say it's a bit tangential is it's simply not 
discussed too heavily in this article. I think you're right. It is 100% germane to the conversation. But there's this sort of, and I'll, and I'll use um, Evan's words here, this, this conundrum about American whiskey and American whiskey ownership. He says, another conundrum is many American whiskey distilleries are now owned by European conglomerates. Milan-based Campari is home of Wild Turkey and Russell's Reserve, right? The, the, that's our favorite uh, bourbon producer. Um, Paris-based uh, Pernod Ricard owns Rabbit Hole and Jefferson's. Stoli mm-hmm. um, helms Kentucky Owl. Um, and then LVMH here is, is owns Woodenville. And, ha- and this is a new one on me. Owns a minor- minority stake in Vermont's Whistlepig. These are really big brands owned by European companies You're <laughs> in countries that don't really care about American spirits. I just think that's a really interesting juxtaposition. Yeah, it, it is. I, I think what's also quite interesting is we're having this conversation about it's it's the most basic spirits that get sent over to Europe, you know, the, the most mm. basic bourbon and rice mm-hmm. that gets sent over to Europe. If you look over that list, there's a lot of specialist offerings on that list. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's no Jack Daniels on that list. There's no Jim Beam. Um, you know, the, the one for me growing up was always Southern Comfort, uh, which I know bourbon people don't, don't at me once again. This is now second time. Um, you know, <laughs> Southern Comfort was a de facto bourbon or bourbon, uh, for us in Scotland. Um, but you, you look at Rabbit Hole, you look at Woodenville, you look at Whistlepig here. What's missing from the Campari list is Wilderness Trail. And when yeah. Campari made that acquisition, they Good talked point. immediately about premiumization. Um, and so the, the Italians own what they're considering a premium uh, American bourbon now. Will they bring that over to Europe? Will they champion that in Europe? What are these European brands doing to fight these tariffs? You know, you absolutely know they're going to have their lobbying interests. So, so that to me is the, what do you have on offer in Europe? What's allowing you to offer or not offer? What's your pricing at? And are you able to price based on tariffs that are in place? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a pretty serious ball of wax that they're dealing with in Europe. Um, and how do you get around some of those issues when you are a European owner of an American brand slash American bricks and mortar distillery? But But again, back to this point of bourbon only recently becoming popular once again and the American market being such, you know, being a sponge to, to that spirit. Do you think these European parent companies really care that much? If, right, if all of their sales are here, do they need to lobby so hard? So there's a little whisper in the article that, that listeners and viewers, please go read the full article for yourself. It's always important to us that you go read the original source material. Mm. So we actually don't have it on a banner. We don't have it as a quotable. But there's a little whisper in the article that ownership say they want to send the special offerings over to Europe, mm-hmm. and then they perhaps don't send them over to Europe. 
that's not my business. That's not my area of expertise. That's not my area of focus. I do not have an opinion on this. I am just saying there is a whisper in this article by people in Europe who know what bourbons are coming into Europe, Mm. where they are quietly saying, I'm not sure we are being taken care of. I'm not sure they are sending their best stuff. I'm not sure they are championing these brands. And and I think there's maybe a tendency to default to Jim Beam, to Jack Daniels, to larger mm. uh, global brands that are able to take care of themselves, able to get themselves uh, off of shelves. I do have a question for you, Joshua, yeah. just as we're kind of returning to this idea of of the new hype around bourbon. When we talk about scotch, we talk about the 60s being a, a period of boom. We talk about the 80s being a period of bust. We talk mm. about the 90s being the, the beginning of a rebirth. We talk about maybe 2006 being around a time when they were turning on the taps full bore because they were starting to notice, mm-hmm. oh, this, this is getting a global foothold again. For bourbon, my and we talked about this in the, the my top five American spirit list and your top five American spirit list uh, for One Nation Under Whiskey. We talked about my journey being reasonably you know new in bourbon and rye circles. Um, I know you were straight edge for a, a portion of of your youth, but mm-hmm. but in in living in America and 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 having that lived experience, what do you see for peaks and troughs in American bourbon? They're, they weren't too far off from what we saw in Scotch whiskey, you know, it was, I mean, granted here in the U.S., you know, the focus has always been and, and I think will always continue to be when it comes to whiskey on, on bourbon. Um, mm-hmm. And but as those around the the world were sort of dropping scotch whiskey for for vodka gin and cocaine i mean they were doing the same yep. here right it just <laughs> the culture had changed you know it's interesting you you bring up straight edge and we're talking about this too i started watching a movie called american hardcore and it was about the the growth of punk rock and hardcore music in the 80s as Reagan was coming to to the fore and so on and, and bringing this sort of faux um, this faux 50s you know pure ultra cl- clean white lifestyle to you know to, to sort of to, to popular culture and so all of the old stuff fell by the wayside people were becoming clean cut but secretly they were going to clubs they were dancing they were drinking vodka drinks they were doing cocaine they were you know all of this stuff and all of the stuff mm. from the past had left mm. and there's it's just such an interesting correlation as these new governments came into play i think you could say the same thing with with thatcher right and just mm. changing mm. the way people were looking at sure. their own spirits. And and so the journey that you're talking about, I think is a similar journey here in the US where dad's bourbon went away, dad's scotch right. went away, right? right? Yeah, yeah, cool, cool, cool. All right, well, talking about sending, uh, sending bourbon and rye to Europe, I think we've got a quotable coming up. All right. Yeah, let me find it. I think it's I think it's here, right? So it says, while European drinkers are not aware of American whiskey, familiarity with the bourbon category itself, 
is lagging. Bourbon whiskey is more likely to be known by brand names. Jim Beam, Four Roses, Wild Turkey, Worst says. Um, there was uh, a big wave around 2013, 2014. This is what you're talking about here, um, where the importers went crazy. And this is a quote by uh, Henry Danzinger. Um, bourbon was the next big thing, but there was still <laughs> plenty of capacity. So they sent over a lot of stuff to Europe and the stuff sat on shelves for like four or five years and I would buy it when it would go on sale. Like yeah, this reminds yeah. me, um, in 2013, 14, 15, I would start going to uh, shops like the Whiskey Exchange um, to find special mm. bottles of, of Blantons that were, weren't available here mm. in the U.S. that were only yeah. available to the export market. And it was an absolute steal as, as, <laughs> as bourbon prices are starting to go up over here. And you get uh -huh. these steals of cask strength Blantons that could be shipped over. It was like... Like it was that nice lag for me as an American, an American, American bourbon drinker <laughs> accessing uh, whiskey, um, uh, you know, that was sitting in the UK and sitting in Europe and no one was touching it. So we just it's brought funny it home. you mentioned Blantons. That, that, that was one, I would say, around maybe 2018 or so. I, I remember having friends locally here who were buying the, glo the, the gold Blantons mm. out of Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, that that's where yeah, that's yeah, where that yeah. was landing. That started to take on a little uh, a reputation of its own, and so <laughs> imagine imagine basing your European uh, sales numbers on bur on bourbon based on Americans buying bourbon out of Europe. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, Americans, uh, Europeans are really starting to go for bourbon. Yeah, where do you find your shipping? A lot of it. Uh, checks notes. America. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, right now, America is about as European as the UK, which is <laughs> a little tear. Let's have a little glass of whiskey. <laughs> Speaking of which, I, um, I emptied my glass, so I need to pour a little more. But seeing uh -huh. as Woodenville was mentioned. There you go. I, uh, nice selection. Yeah, nice I poured selection. some of our own Woodenville. Yeah, nice one. Yeah, I, I went for something that I had close to me uh, over the weekend as well, which is actually, you talk about what gets sent where. Uh, There's hey. a Maker's Mark cask strength. Uh, I picked this up the last time I was at the distillery. And uh, yeah, 54.4%. I was inspired, maybe a little like yourself, to go cask strength after the article was talking about 40% mm. bourbons, you know, 80 proofers. Uh, being sent over there, so, mm. um, but but it's it's interesting. Just just to quickly return to these numbers that you presented, to see twenty thirteen and twenty fourteen, I I and then sitting on shelves, I wonder how many of the producers said, okay, here comes the rise of bourbon in Europe. We're starting to see this in America. Let's put our efforts forth, only to see poor sales, and then perhaps say. Let's not do that again. Let's let's not do that anytime soon. And we need a greater groundswell mm. across Europe and UK uh, to perhaps see more of the specials. I still have your point in the back of my mind, which is, well, maybe there's not a lot of specials to go over to Europe because they're still being purchased in America. 
Well, let me ask you this too. Let, let, let's say we live in a perfect world and in that perfect world, there's plenty of bourbon to go around. There's no threat of tariffs. Um, shipping costs from the US to, to the UK or Europe are, are such that you can sell a bottle of bourbon or rye or American single malt. I do want to talk about yeah. that in a little bit um, yeah. on, on UK Europe shelves at a very competitive price when compared to, to Scotch whiskey or Irish or what have you. Yeah. Is the European palate or does the European palate line up with American bourbon, with rye. I mean, we as Americans have a sweet tooth, which works so well with bourbon because it's a very sweet spirit. It's sweet, it's comforting. It's like, ah, there's home, right? And when yeah. you think of Scotch whiskey, Irish whiskey, uh, e even Europe European ryes, um, the, the, the spirit type is nowhere near as sweet as it is when compared to bourbon or rye. So if we're living in this perfect world, would the sales translate? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think a really interesting, um, corollary here is uh -huh. when Europeans come to the U S on vacation and eat in the U S or, or maybe, you know, get, get a soda, in the US, maybe treat themselves to an American soda in America. Mm. The the number one response you get is how sweet everything is. Everything. And and I think if you look, you know, for, for me with Scotch, Irish is too sweet for me. Mm. Uh, Irish whiskey. And and I've I've traditionally not not drunk very much Irish whiskey. Um and so Scotch being very much in my wheelhouse. I do think to that personal story that I told of of my own rise of of bourbons and rise, I did. I, I wrote off bourbons as as all too sweet, as all too mm. corn forward, mm. and it was only in learning about mash bills and starting to go down paths with higher rye bourbons to say, oh, you can have a bourbon that's a little herbal or a, a little vegetal or you know, mm. a little bit of dill floating around there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think rye is a natural stopping point uh, for those who have you know, Scotch palates. Um, you know, Irish palates, you know, what would that translate to as, as bourbon? But yeah, I, I think... You started our episode with it, and, and I think it's it's worthy returning to it. It's liquid on lips, yeah. and I don't think you can just assume Europe is going to get excited about bourbon. And 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 I think, and you said this just a second ago, where we do need to talk about American single malt whiskey before yeah. we get out of here. But I don't think we can just lump together bourbons with rice. You know, I think they're bringing yeah. two very different things to the table. Yeah. I think the problem is they often come from the same distilleries. And so somewhat as we've been trained on scotch, you, you know, Lagavulin is not going to put out something remarkably outside its distillery style. Hmm. Glenn mm -hmm. Barclays isn't going to put out something remarkably outside its distillery style. Yeah, Wild turkey rye and wild turkey bourbons, while having maybe a, a point of connection, aren't like each other. And so don't write off wild turkey if you don't like wild turkey bourbon, 
you might still like the wild turkey rye. And, and, and that goes for other distilleries. You know, your, your mileage may vary. Um, yeah. But I, I think it's going to be the marketing that came to the U.S. in the 90s for scotch mm. needs to go the opposite direction in the 20s if if they want to see Europe and the UK becoming the markets that they would that they perhaps want to see them becoming or they just say look let's put in as few resources as possible and mm. let's make the money that we can make with the littlest input that we can but it's it's their business decisions. It's up to them. But yeah. for the gentlemen who are in this article, they're crying out for more and better bourbons and more and better rice. Yeah, so good luck sure. to them. Yeah. But but to the point that we must make before we get out of here. Well, it, do we know if American single malt is part of this potential 50% tariff going into Europe? Yeah, I, I just simply do not know. I'm yeah. not going to hazard a guess either way. Okay. Yeah, I I thought that it may because I think it was sort of this general American spirits thing, right? Which which would be really unfortunate because I think I think American single malt whiskey is such a wonderful bridge for your European and 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 UK consumer because it has that that grain, that familiar grain that, that Europeans can connect to. Yet in some cases, they are using some new charred oak or, or, or what have you. And so it's this nice bridge between Scotch single malt, Irish pot still, or what have you, and American bourbon, where you have this like midway point. And wouldn't it be nice for all American producers that Europeans find the beauty in American single malt, and then that translates into them finding the beauty in our bourbons and in our rise and, and so on. Because I really do. I think it's a great, a great bridge between the two spirit styles. Yeah, I, the article actually closes with, a, I think, a, a very reasonable point where, it, once again, it's Henry Danzinger. Uh, and he, he says... I guess it's just that we are creatures of habit and we are used to Scotch whiskey. This is in Europe. So when the bottle of Glenfiddich 12 is done, they'll buy another Glenfiddich 12 because they're just used to it. And I think when you and I started Single Cast Nation mm. and we were introducing people to single cask, cask strength whiskies, and people would say, well, what's wrong with the the lag of Vullen that I buy? What's wrong with the Macallan that I buy? You know, and, and we would say, well, here's something else. Here's something to add to your whiskey journey. Mm -hmm. And I think that effort that was put in speaks to the ongoing effort. And, and I love the point you're making about, okay, we're in Europe. You're a creature of habit. You know single malts. You know 100% barley. Mm -hmm. Let's have an American perspective on this, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and we've we, you know we've we've talked at length about Swedish perspectives and Israeli perspectives yeah. and Indian perspectives. What about an, an American perspective? And if that then opens a door to additional opportunities with one's whiskey journey, that that's a terrific thing as well. Absolutely wonderful. 
But but again, if we look at this as consumers mm. and we look at this as people who believe in bourbon and rye and American single malt whiskey, we're saying to our fellow consumers, hey, this is worth getting excited about. You know, put in the time, get into bars, find out who's championing this in your local circles. You know, Stefan in, in Switzerland with the association over there. That's tremendous. You know, get more information there. However, if one is a European-based conglomerate, mm-hmm. and one is looking at one's business plan, and one is looking at one's global goals. Maybe it doesn't align with European consumer goals, it, in which case you need to get more vocal and more demanding, and articles like Vinepair and being discussed on Extra Extra <laughs> is exactly where you want to get yourself heard to say, we are demanding this, damn it, send it over here. And I and I think that's that's very true for you know, even you know, speaking personally, you know, very dear friends like like Jess and Sweet Scott, who are, you know, Westland, unpaid Westland uh, ambassadors <laughs> in Glasgow, yeah, who yeah. are saying, you know, you know, we're putting this into, you know, liquid on lips, your expression, you know? Mm-hmm. Like we're getting this in front of people. What does the support look like? What's Remy doing on the back of private individuals championing that American single malt whiskey? Yeah. Can I add just just one last thing? I realize that might take us slightly over a 35 minutes. But, you know, when we think about the various markets that we would put our whiskeys into, you know, we, we know that in Germany, they like certain heavier flavors, right? And in the U.S., they like sweetness. And and in in Sweden, they love peated whiskeys, right? Mm-hmm. Every mm-hmm. market has its own uh, leanings, did, you know, based on on you know what people grew up with, or, or based on a number of factors that we can't name here. It, I do wonder if these European conglomerates that own American producers would consider potentially coming up with different mash bills, different um, mm. char levels on, on their barrels or whatever, to come up with some some sort of bourbon or rye or whatever that might more closely fit that European palate. Mm-hmm. That could be another mm-hmm. approach for them to sort of popularize this spirit yeah. and give people that that foot in the door into the spirit yeah. type. Well, and to, to be perfectly honest with you, Coke's recipe in Europe is different from Coke's recipe in America. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can be a global conglomerate mm-hmm. and still be market specific and still understand the, the demands uh, of key markets. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I would... Yeah, I, I love this idea of American single malt whiskey being a potential bridge. Um, but, yeah, and maybe 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 it won't be a bridge. Maybe folk will go American single malt. That's my category. I love adding that. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't even <laughs> need to be a bridge. It could just be something they fall in love with. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, I would I would love for Europeans and, and the UK to kind of get more of that American mm-hmm. single malt whiskey mm-hmm. uh, going on as well. Yeah. 
all right, I, I've got I've got more thoughts and more things to say, but let's let's wrap it up here. That was that was the uh, the uh, wonderful conversation that I anticipated uh, when Steve Hawley sent this article into us. So so cheers to Steve for bringing that to Many our thanks. attention. Um, if you would like to reach out to us, you can email us at info at uh, info at singlecastnation.com uh, or questions at one nation under whiskey.com uh, as viewers are able to see right now there is no e in whiskey uh, listeners i am telling you there is no e in whiskey ever hmm? uh, joshua would like you to smash that subscribe button and tickle that bell at t t b and so go ahead and do that to be reminded of new episodes and uh, uh, anything, anything else I'm, I'm missing in our, our wrap-up? Oh, I tell you what I will say. I will say thank you to VinePair, and I will say thank you to Evan Rail for the words mm-hmm. and Sarah Pinsonalt for the illustration. And I will say uh, to listeners and viewers, please go check out the VinePair article. There are many more quotes in there that we did not get into a type 35 today. And uh, and it will remain worth your while. Uh, I'd also love to hear opinions uh, on what we discussed today. You know, from European listeners and viewers, uh, what would you like to see happen with bourbon and rye and American single malt whiskey uh, over there, as we say, the other side of the Atlantic from where you and I are sitting, Joshua? There we go. All right, on that, let's get out of here. It's I'm checking the clock on the wall, and even though we did add some minutes, it's still a tight 35. So go us. We are... Every time. Every time. Every time. Nail it. Let your watch by us. Just don't do a 35-minute run by us, Ollie. Can, can I Madness ask one, one favor of you, Jason? Just one. Mm-hmm. Because Just only one. you have this ability. I do not oh, have gosh. this ability. The power that I have. It's December 6th. It's my birthday. I need party <laughs> balloons, Jason. I've turned 50 this day. Give me some party balloons. Is this party balloons? Oh, there's hey, fireworks. Fireworks. All right. Ooh, and, and a thumbs, thumbs up. And oh, then, I think I think you've got to do this. Yeah. It goes it goes both ways. No, not that way. See, Joshua, there's no party balloons on oh, your birthday. Man. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, hey, there we we go. (laughs) Listeners, Joshua got the party balloons for his 50th birthday. Happy birthday, Joshua. Thank you, Jason. December 6, 2023. Remember, let's see what it looks like December 6, 2073. Remember, remember the sixth of December. That's that's what that's I was saying. That's, that's what we all grew up saying in the UK, yeah. and then we yeah. would burn an effigy of Joshua. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, dear viewers, dear listeners, peace. Peace. <laughs> there they are again. The Hello. balloons of peace. Oh.